Hi, everyone. I'm Mel Butcher. And I'm Michelle Ridfin. And we're behind the Lead to Soar podcast. We've got a couple really fun things to share with you. And the first thing we want to share is our colleague, Susan Colantuno. She started a podcast called Be Business Savvy. Be Business Savvy. We highly recommend it. And it's a short form podcast where you hear directly from Susan. It's like having a friendly mentor in your ear. So check her out at BeBusinessSavvy.com. Over to you, Michelle. Thanks, Mel. Well, two exciting things from me, along with Be Business Savvy. Number one, The Leadership Compass. My very first book is due for release on March 26, 2024. You can find out more about The Leadership Compass, what it's all about. Of course, it'll be your ultimate guide if you're an ambitious woman leader. You can find more about that at michelleredfern.com. And hand in hand with the Leadership Compass book is the Leadership Compass boot camps. I'm going to do one boot camp a quarter for 2024 for just six women at a time. And you'll be working through in three weeks. So, yes, it's short, sharp, and high impact. All of the elements from the Leadership Compass and my 40 years of executive experience. So, you'll cover BQ, EQ, and SQ, and you will be positioned to have a career that soars. Again, you can find out about the boot camps at michelleredfern.com, leadtosoar.com, or if you can't find any of that, just drop us a line and we'll point you in the right direction. You're listening to Lead to Soar, bringing women the best career advice and mentorship from around the world. Lead to Soar is a production of a career that soars. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. The Lead to Soar podcast is recorded in many places across the world. In Australia, it's recorded on the lands of the Wadawurrung, Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the cultures and the hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across the nation. We also pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Welcome back, listeners, to the Lead to Soar podcast. It's Michelle Redfern with you, one of your hosts today. And today I'm very, very pleased to have with me Dr. Katrina Wallace. Now, I feel like Katrina's known to to many people, particularly in the US uh, and Australia, for her work in AI and and many other things. But I kind of go, I go right back to when she was hanging around call centres. So because that's where I first met her and became aware of this, this force of nature that is Dr. Katrina Wallace, but I'll let her talk about that in a moment. So before we get into the conversation, let me give you the official bio. So Dr. Katrina Wallace is recognized as an entrepreneur in the artificial intelligence and machine learning fields. Katrina also has a global reputation as a leading practitioner, speaker, and media commentator on responsible technology, AI ethics, and the future of work. Dr. Wallace is the CEO of Ethical AI Advisory, the chair of venture capital fund Boab AI, and she was the founder of Flamingo AI, a machine learning company with headquarters in New York and Sydney. Dr. Wallace has been recognised by the Australian Financial Review as the most influential woman in business and entrepreneurship in 2018 and as the FinTech Leader and Overall Excellence in Finance Award by Women in Finance 2018 and many, many other accolades beyond that. Katrina, brilliant to have you with me today. And if we were 
sitting somewhere with a glass of lovely bubbles and someone wandered up to us and said, hi, Michelle, who's this with you? I'd say, well, I'll let her introduce herself. What would you say? (laughs) Well, I would say, first and foremost, I am a woman. I am a mother and I am a grandmother. So that's who I am. I'm also a medicine woman in training, which is a whole other topic. So we'll just park that for now. So that's who I am. What I do is a bunch of things. So predominantly, I am an entrepreneur and I have built a number of businesses. So back in the day when you and I knew each other, I was running a business called Fifth Quadrant and ACA Research around uh, customer experience, call centres, contact centres. Then I founded one of Australia's first artificial intelligence startups, Flamingo AI. Australia was a bit too young to know what to do with AI then. So I, I built the business out of North America and sold it in 2020. And then I have a an academic path as well. So I'm adjunct professor at the Australian Graduate School of Management. And there my area of expertise is the role that technology plays in replacing human leaders. And again, another whole, whole world of topic in that. And uh, Uh, And also I am now, as I mentioned, medicine woman in training. So this is working with shamanic practices, part of the psychedelic renaissance, Uh, obviously that's None of that's legal in Australia, so overseas is where that's that's focused. What else do I do? Sit on the board of a bunch of companies, the Garvin Institute, the Gradient Institute, Reset Australia. Yeah, all, all about responsible AI. And, and I'm just about in the process of launching another whole new international movement called the Responsible Metaverse Alliance. So for me, as a woman, my role is to make sure that technology is steered in a way that is not detrimental to women, minorities and the vulnerable. And as we know, Michelle, it's completely, that's not the case right now. No, it is not. And I I did see your bid to become the first commissioner for the metaverse uh, here in Australia. Well, let's let's make it global. I don't know if Ed Husick's got the control for global, but uh, I saw you make a a pitch recently to our our new uh, federal minister for digital and technology. I forget his his exact portfolio, but I couldn't think of a better person to uh, to head up the metaverse because you have been challenged challenging us for some time to think more deeply and more broadly about, well, I'm going to use the technology bucket word, you know, technology, digital, artificial intelligence, machine learning. And what I, I particularly want to, well, I want to call out a couple of things today. I'll discuss a couple of things with you, particularly around women in STEM. And again, a catch-all phrase, but you know, the advice you might give for women who are in the the STEM areas, particularly in artificial intelligence, because we do need more women in AI, which is the whole name of this episode of the podcast. So what's your advice to those women who are aspiring to or are in that system right now? I want to talk to you about the advice about being a CEO for those women who are aspiring to be a CEO. I'm going to talk a little bit about, I want to call BS on having it all as well, because there is an article I read about you about, oh, Katrina's having it all. And I, I think oh, people have heard me talk call BS on that anyway. But I also want to talk about the manosphere and why it's so important that we start to really pay attention as women, we really start to pay attention to the legacy that we're going to leave in artificial intelligence, machine learning technology, the metaverse. So that's kind of what I want to talk about. Let's go into AI first, because this is where, as I said, you've challenged, well, you certainly challenged me to think more deeply about 
things that I, I was starting to take for granted. Simple things like, you know, my Siri on my Apple Watch and my Apple iPhone and some of these things that were happening through to when I was still in the corporate world, stuff I could get done by machines rather than by people and what that meant for the bottom line, not necessarily thinking about all being pointed towards the ethics and the risks associated with that. So I guess, how did your journey start in artificial intelligence and what what was the impetus for you to go, whoa, I need to have a crack at this and start to really dig into making it better? Great question. Yeah, so I had, after I'd finished my PhD, I co-founded two organisations, ACA Research and, and Fifth Quadrant. And there we were researching a lot of technology companies, which is how you and I met, mm. and then looking at customer experience. And from that, I saw, well, I don't see how this is going to be human to human for too much longer because I'm seeing the big technology companies coming in, more automation. It wasn't quite AI then. And I thought, well, I can see an opportunity now to build a software company rather than professional services companies that assist customers have a better experience than they are just waiting on hold on call centers or trying to deal with some hideous web chat. And so that was the original idea. Um, Let me see if I can invent something that would automate a customer experience and a employee customer service person having having an interaction. So that was that was the idea. So that was 2013. And I really hadn't deliberately set out to go into artificial intelligence. But once I looked at it all and how this automation would work, then indeed it was the answer was artificial intelligence and machine learning in particular. But in the day then, so by that stage I figured that out, 2014, there was no AI around. There was no free AI anywhere or open source anything. So we had to build our own and we built our own machine learning platform, which we had patented in the US and in Australia called semi-supervised machine learning. And as I sort of started being one of the pioneers in the AI field from Australia and working in the US, started to see how quickly AI was starting to come. And in fact, now today, AI is the fastest growing technology sector in the world, valued at $327 billion last year due to double in the next three years. We look, it's looks to, if we follow the World Economic Forum, 85 million jobs will be removed from the workforce globally over the next two years because of AI. 92 million jobs will be created because of the coming of AI. So all of this I could see was coming. The real human technology mashup was really starting starting to happen as we are seeing, seeing it now. And Australia is quite far behind the rest of the world with our uptake and knowledge and understanding of AI. And I'm trying to do my best along with brilliant woman Stella Solar from the National AI Centre to try and get Australia to to step up and actually come on board. And Ed Husick being the technology minister now will really, really assist that. So that was my, my vision. My vision was to improve customer experience or human experience by using an automated technology such as artificial intelligence. As you started on that that journey and started to build and research and discover and iterate and create solutions, what were some of the things that you discovered about the industry or about, I know it's a leading question, but about the state of the nation, the state of the AI nation? Yeah, well, <laughs> I learned a lot. So I learned that it was, it was in my day when I started like 99% male. So there was hardly any, any women and particularly in, in leadership roles. So at the moment, I think globally, there's nine in 10 roles in AI are held by men. 
and only one in 10 by women. And when we get to leadership, then it's just a fra- fraction of that. So I was very much on my own. I also learned that in that mid-2000s, uh, venture capital funds were also not too keen to give money to women at all. And even now, it's less than 2.8% of all venture capital funds will go to women-led businesses. That number doesn't really change. Mm. So that's why I went to the US because the US was actually much better than Australia was there. But as I built this company and and we ended up building a, a customer facing robot that guided customers through their sales experience. And then we built an employee facing robot that acted as a subject matter expert within in the business. What I realized is that there was no concept or discussion about ethics. And so we even had one, one actually Australian company, which was a very well-known brand, financial service company, who we said, all right, well, you need to tell the customers that they're dealing with a robot now and not a human. They said, oh, no, no, we don't want them to think that they're dealing with a robot. We said, well, they are. You need to tell them. And they said, no, no, no. If it's done really well, they, they it should be seamless and they won't know that it's a robot. Anyway, I'll just step back and went, oh, goodness me, like, how is this a thing? And so that was the time when the, the question of, wow, who's running this? Who's leading this? There are no rules. There are no laws. There's no regulations for AI itself. And it's predominantly men running it. I'm not seeing a lot of ethical discussion. This shit could go really badly. Mm, mm. And it, it, it is interesting. I've just had a conversation this morning with quite a young man, compared to me anyway, quite a young man in the sports industry who was kind of saying, Michelle, I'm having these conversations with a whole bunch of the same looking people as me. And we're not talking about you know, matter one, matter two, matter three. And a lot of it was to do with gender equity. And I said, this is why we need different faces and voices and lived experience around the table so we can go, oh, actually, that doesn't sound quite right. It sounded like anarchy. So there's no rules, there's no boss, there's no regulations or regulator. How much has that changed? Hardly at all. I mean, the government and I work very closely with good ministers like uh, Minister Victor Dominello at New South Wales. He is the Minister for Digital and Customer Service. Also started to build a relationship with Minister Husick. So we know government are interested in responsible and ethical practices and technology. I worked very closely with Minister Karen Andrews before she was moved out and Christian Porter put into the technology ministry uh, portfolio. It's a whole other conversation, but Karen Andrews was very good. She she was the one who led the release of the guidelines for ethical principles for AI. But that's all they are, Michelle. They, they're guidelines. They're not mm. rules. It's not regulation. Also, another person who did a really good job on this was the previous Human Rights Commissioner, Ed Santo. So Ed is now Professor for Responsible Technology at UTS, but Ed really pushed the human rights angle on the, the damages that AI, particularly automated um, algorithmic decision-making, will have. So we have some good champions in Australia, but really the, it, the law is toothless um, mm. compared to how fast this is moving. So uh, that brings me then to, I want to kind of swing it right around to your lived experience as a very, very visible minority in this sector. So, and two angles from here. So number one, the first question is, in fact, I'll do the second question first. Thinking about the sheer lack of women in the sector, so even lower than STEM more broadly, thinking about some of the 
the, I guess the perceptions of the sector, low low ethics, low, well, let's say low ethical frameworks um, or decision-making frameworks. Why would, um, we obviously want more women and more diverse people to join, to, to, to become experts in artificial intelligence work in the sector, but why would they when there's just a, such a homogenous group of people in there? And how have you managed being so very different to the, the very big group of men that are there? How do you manage being the one in the one in 10? Look, I seem to have had a career of being in what I call hyper-masculine environments. I was once a police officer back in the day. I was once a nightclub owner back in the day, along with some other uh, business partners. And I have tended to be in, in these kind of hyper-masculine um, environments, and including ending up running a, a publicly listed company, which was probably the most extreme experience I've had as a, a leader, very, very challenging. And so for me, it's very aware and I've been brought up to be socially purposed. So the reason that I do business, the reason that I make money, the reason why I build businesses is not for me to be rich and look after myself. It is actually all about how do I make an impact on the world and how do I bring some diversity and bring some different perspective so that humanity, you know, doesn't continue to, to suffer in the way that, that it does. And in particular, I'm just deeply concerned about the future for women, particularly minorities, for youth. You know, I just still see we kind of take a step forward and then step and a half back and then we're going to two steps out that way and three steps out this way. And, you know, we're seeing what's happening in, in America at the moment mm. with you know, some really not even a step backwards, but just massive leaps backwards on abortion and gun control and those sorts of things. So for me, I'm driven because I actually only ever wanted to be a farmer. That's all I ever wanted to do. I didn't actually want to be a business person, but I was brought up in a family that was very successful entrepreneurs, but also very big philanthropists and brought up to know that as a white woman living in Australia, I'm very privileged and I have an obligation to really champion those who ha have not been as lucky as, as I've been. And so that that's actually my reason for being. Mm. It's got really to do with technology. So if, if we were to, to then say, how do we turn that into advice for those who may be considering, it's, it's, and I don't want to sound too hokey or anything like that, but it's almost like, what's your legacy going to be? So if you're, if you're wavering between going down the AI path and say another speciality, do your bit for humankind by, if you're a woman or, or a diverse person, when I say diverse person, apologies, listen, I mean, not straight, white, cisgendered male. If you don't identify as that, jump on in because this could be your opportunity to shape even a small part of, of the future for, for humanity. So it's a really big, higher purpose calling, isn't it? Look, it is, but it's also something more than that, Michelle. So I do a lot of work in rites of passage. So my partner is Dr. Anna Rubenstein, and he does all rites of passage for men and boys. And so I've been the last six years in and around rites of passage for, for women and girls. And for women, you know, our rite of passage and, and the heroine's journey is very different to the hero's journey. We only ever hear about the hero's journey. We do. The heroine's journey is much more an internal journey to find meaning, to learn to trust our intuition, to, to bond with the sisterhood and not see women as, as competition. So in this internal journey, I have learned over my many years now of being in the workforce that meaning in work is incredibly important to women. I mean, we're trained to, oh, go for the big salary or go for the title because that's the 
patriarchiness and more masculine, but actually for us it is about finding meaning. And so that path that you said, like if a, a woman is faced with, okay, I could go on this path and this is more glamorous, more money, more title, or this path which I think I can leave something, I think this is meaningful, I think this will make a difference, then every time I urge the women, take the path with heart, just take it because yeah. what happens on the heroine's journey, there's a there's kind of like about 10 stations. One of the stations, once we get to this like lofty heights of what we've been trying to do, is emotional and spiritual aridity where we just go, here I am and I'm empty inside. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I agree. And um, as someone who has taken the path with heart, walked away from a corporate career and doing what I'm doing now, which is to close the global leadership gender gap, it is hugely rewarding on simply every level. You know, it's interesting interesting with talking about the hero's journey because about the first time I was exposed to the hero's journey, I was also exposed to following you, following my bliss. And, you know, I just think every single day I talk to women who wake up one day and it, I kind of use this analogy, but it's not just one day for a lot of women. They wake up one day and go, right, so here I am. I'm X age and typically 40s. Something big's happened, either my 40th birthday. This might be slightly autobiographical. Might be my 40th birthday. It might be I've been made redundant, got divorced, kids left home, or I've just woken up and gone, what the hell? Who am I? What do I stand for? And I'm kind of looking at the corner office next or whatever going, God, I don't want that anymore. What's wrong with me? And, you know, so anyway, so that's, that's a bit, bit more philosophical, but I guess, so take the path with heart. That's great advice. And I'll make a great, um, that'll make a great sound bite. But if we think coming back to then your success in, you know, serial entrepreneur, run lots of business, you know, started, um, scaled up and, and run lots of businesses, you have clearly uh, and in hyper-masculine environments, you have clearly mastered the art of business strategic and financial acumen, which is at the cornerstone of everything we do in a career that solves and on the lead saw podcast saying, we want you to run, be able to run a business, whether it's your own business, the organization that pays you, what does the CEO want you to know? So you've, you've built and honed that business strategic and financial acumen, but you've clearly been able to communicate and engage the greatness in others extraordinarily well. Well, because I, I just get a sense that that industry could have chewed you up and spat you out pretty promptly had you not been able to get in there and do what you needed to do without being a threat to, to some of these folks. You know, I guess what are one or two experiences that you went, okay, this is the way I'm going to do this. This is the way I'm going to achieve what we need to achieve for the industry, but also for myself, for my business, my career. Well, I think definitely one of it is exactly as you said, understanding business, understanding how to run a business, the finances, the strategy, building a team, building a product, getting it to market, customer experience, all of that sort of more technical parts of business building, I think I, I learned how to do it and then able able to apply it. And the more you do it, then the faster mm. you, you, be, you become. So I know this new organisation I'll launch on the 30th of July, the Responsible Metaverse Alliance. I can very quickly spin a business up within a month, get everything in place and, and launch it. Yeah. Um, so, so I think there's when, that technique. Katrina, sorry to interrupt. Wait, so when did you learn that? At what point in your life slash career did you go, I really need to make sure that I know I know my stuff, that I'm seen as a credible businesswoman? I'm Mel Butcher, and I want to talk to you about Project Best Self. 
Project Best Self is a goal-setting and habit-formation-intensive. Together, we'll get clarity on our goals, set up the systems we need to be successful in those goals, and provide support to one another in our cohort in this intensive. I'd love to see you inside Project Best Self. Come join us. Learn more under the Courses section inside A Career That Soars. This is a good question. So probably for me, because I did my PhD at the Australian Graduate School of Management, I also taught on the MBA program there for 10 years. So I, by default, learned about everything to do with business administration and running a business. But that was more just the theory to confirm what I had done because I already built a couple of businesses before then. Um, definitely for me, I came from an entrepreneurial family and my father, who was a successful businessman, taught me a lot and, and was probably the only real mentor I've had in my life, it would be him. Uh, so I did learn from, from family. But also there is, when you start to learn as you get a bit sort of older, that there is like just a formula for running a business and setting up business. So just things that you need to do and metrics that you need to have and the way you need to set it out. So that formula, it's hard when you're young and you're starting in it and everything is all over the place. But um, here is, I actually was doing a, a mentoring session with a, a young AI woman, a robot, but she's a woman in AI this morning. <laughs> and I said, I said to her, Camille, here's what you need to know. As a, as, a, as a CEO, there's like four things you need to do. You need to get the money. You need to not spend the money. So one, you need to go get the money. So that could be funding or revenue. You need to know how to not spend money. So keeping keeping your expenses down and very, very lean. You need to be the custodian for the vision. And then you need to deeply engage your employees and your customers into that vision. And if you can just do those things, then that'll set you on a good path as a a leader. Makes a lot of sense. And I think, so I'm going to replay that through the lens of our leadership definition. So leadership is using the greatness in you, so your vision, to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes. So get the money, don't spend the money, keep your expenses lean and your customers by engaging the greatness in others. Deeply engage. So you've just You've just given us a beautiful four-part formula that matches our three-part formula because where where I still get frustrated is when I see women's literature, conferences, leadership, books, blah, 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 that, that tells us to be confident and assertive and how to be good team players and what have you. But the reality is, and this is why we call it the missing 33%, women are still not being taught early enough and told and reminded you have to know how to run a business. You actually have to know how to get the money. You have to know how where to spend it and when to hold it. Um, and and you actually have to be able to deliver for your customers, your people and your shareholders. And you kind of have to tell people where you're going with all that too. So it's I always say to to women, what is what what does your CEO want you to know? Does does that person want you to be looking at how to be dressed for success or all the crap you see on Instagram and what have you? Or does that CEO want to know that you really get that, that customers are so volatile and they will vote with their feet and their wallets in a heartbeat in a highly commoditized world with globalization going ramp, you know, becoming rampant? That's probably what you need to know. So how do you counter 
when you mentor women, how do you counter some of that stuff that we washed and marinated in that is the, the traditional conventional advice given to women? Yeah, it's, it's a good one. And if I, even on that confidence one, I say to people, this is not possible for you to be confident unless you've failed epically three times. Mm. You, you know, it's like you're not a good horse rider until you've fallen off three times, I think is the expression. It's exactly the same. Your confidence will come from marginally success, but mostly from failure. As you go down, come back up, dust yourself off. You are not going to be confident because you dress in a particular way. You are not going to be confident because you speak in a particular way. Confidence comes from experience in, you know, in the ring. That's where it, where it comes. So, mm-hmm. so I debunk a lot of that and say, you, you need to, they're like cloaks that you put on and they'll be easily stripped off you. You learn by being in the trenches, in the ring, doing the work. And so, and doing the work is you know, learning the formula, learning how to run the business, but having the experiences, taking the risks, and also this concept of, you know, doing doing some of the tough yards. So with my business, Flamingo, when, after we listed it on the stock exchange, you know, it went very well for a period of time, extremely well, and then really tough times. And I was just brutally like beaten up by the market and nothing that we did would lift the share price and it was really really tough ride and it was you know I I, um there's a great book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz and this kind of talks about the entrepreneur's journey of when you know you go oh my god it couldn't be any worse oh my CEO's just resigned. Oh, now it's worse. Couldn't get any worse than that. Oh, our largest customer has just gone off with our computer. Can't get any worse. Oh, my child has just run away from home. Oh, can't get any worse. And it's like, the, you know, this is hard, but then this is hard and this is hard and this is hard. But mm. there is no path to greatness. There is no path to greatness unless you've gone down into the struggle and you've come back out onto the, onto the second mountain. You know, you've climbed mm. the first mountain, good you go into the depths up on the second mountain and there you stand there confident it, it's the ten thousand hours isn't it which i know gets argued about you know you're an expert when you've done ten thousand hours of work on that big work and certainly you know, I, I don't know if it's ten thousand what what the the you know formula is but yeah you've got to do the work I, i'd like to give i'd like you to give some advice to women about doing that work and in the context of prioritizing what work they do so I'm just going to come out with it. Women don't prioritise themselves. They don't prioritise the stuff that I reckon they should be prioritising, which is investing in their professional development so they can earn more, have choices, and those choices might be like you and me and others who now have the opportunity to give um, and be philanthropists in all sorts of different ways. So choice, 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 choice. But I've done the work, so you've done the work, and, and I'm not perfect, but what do you say to women who say, oh, look, I can't really afford to buy that book or go to that course or do the conference or be go I don't really like networking but how do you how do you get through to folks who don't want to do the work well how do you know that's the wrong question how do you get through to your mentees who are saying what is the secret to success Katrina and you say well you've got to do the work well which how do I prioritize doing that big question there's, there's something yeah. like that so other things in there so the part of the secret is you just show up like mm. you just even when it's really bad even when the house is burning down, even when everything is turning shit, you just turn up and you just turn up and you just turn up. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it must be a continual growth and learning path for you. So I love the the growth mindset model because I can guarantee to all of the women 
listening, there is only one thing that we will guarantee on your entrepreneurial or leadership journey, only one thing, and that is that you will learn. Mm. We don't know if you're going to be successful. We don't know if you're going to fail. But if you're open-minded, you will learn, and that's the only guarantee that you have. And the more you learn, the better you are. And even me now, chairs of, of a venture capital fund, I so I see, deal with a lot of young entrepreneurs it's the ones who are coachable. It's the ones who listen, seek advice, go away and do what their mentor has suggested as long as it, it's a suitable thing. These are the ones that fly. So it's it's about learning and that does need to be prioritised. So the, the women, I do encourage them to, to be the best in their field too. So to, to be out learning, learning, learning your field so that you're right across all of the latest goings on in the field that that is super super important because if we think about the definition of an entrepreneur it is essentially someone who knows field very well and can identify a gap know that gap has been resistant to other solutions then the entrepreneur comes with a unique solution to fill that gap that is then has a commercial outcome that is my definition of being an entrepreneur and so you need to know your field and be learning your field all the time because particularly now fields change very, very quickly. So I agree with you about the learning and women prioritising their own development. But this concept of prioritisation is a really interesting thing, right? So I know people go, it's kind of a linear thing like priority one, priority two, priority three. And I go, and I say this to some of my team, oh, when they go, oh, I can't do that. Like, okay, just take your priority list, your vertical list and turn it horizontal. Mm. You now have four priorities, go and do them all. And then they go, oh, can't do them all. I said, okay, well, here's what we do. We write a to-do list with 10 things on it that you must do today. You do three of those and you let seven of them fall on the floor. And it's going to really, really make you feel uncomfortable because there are customers you're not calling back or supplies you're not getting to or things you're not doing. Let those seven things just lie on the floor. The next day, do your to-do list, 10 things. Do the top three let the seven fall on the floor. And by the end of the week, you'll go and have a look and you'll think that you've got you know, some massive amounts of, of priorities on the floor and you'll think, holy shit, there's hardly anything, there's hardly anything down there. And then with the prioritisation, for me it is where is either where is the money? So mm. is this, you know, of my top three priorities, which one is going to get the money? Which one is going to save the money? Which one is going to optimise the customer experience? Anything else? let it fall on the floor. Yeah, I do absolutely applaud you on, on that prioritisation piece. It's an interesting one about I'm not very big on to-do lists and I'm very shit at goals. So, But I know kind of what I'm on the earth to do and I also have, like you, I think, well, in the next hour I could play around on Canva and make some beautiful social media graphics or I could have a phone call with someone who's really important in my client group uh, because I've had an idea that might take their business forward. You know, so That's I think it. it's, and we talk about it, are you working on the right stack of work in the next one hour, one day, one week, one month? You know, the right stack of work means you actually, you're hooked into what does that CEO want you to know? Does your CEO want the best looking PowerPoint template in the metaverse? Or does your CEO want your customers to say, never, ever, ever take Katrina off our account because she is gold. She understands us and gets us and we're going to keep buying from you. So it's it's, it's great advice. All right, so let's let's get really granular then. Words of advice. So many of our listeners are new to leadership or navigating their first kind of reasonably big leader of leaders role. And they are, well, they're looking, they're looking to women like you to say, 
what what is it going to take? And I know again, big questions. That's that's you know that's kind of my remit as the person asking questions. I just ask big unanswerable questions. But when you, if you think back to your the stage of your career when you were first starting to particularly lead leaders of other leaders, what what are some things that you got really right that you'd like advise women? Well, all leaders, but um, for them to to follow. And what are some things that you kind of went, oh, geez, I'd never do that again. I think in coming. In coming into leadership, the two things that I, I would say, it, it's a very big role of listening. It's a very genuine role of listening, listening to customers, listening to the market, listening to the board, listening to your team, listening to research. It's it's a big part of listening. So, so that's, that's it. And suspending your judgment and all your ideas because you're the leader and you need to be taking the company and just listen, listen, listen. I really encourage leaders to do this and that's to speak last. Because, you know, we get, well, we're a leader, we're coming into the room and people want to know that, you know, I'm the leader. And so, no, 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 just where you can, just be the last to speak. Let everyone else speak, facilitate that. You be the last one to speak. I think that's uh, super important. Uh, We mentioned before, be the custodian of the vision and live that vision. So don't just have that vision is your in your business world that that you have to be the embodiment of that vision. And so that is super important. And then I think just try where you can to remove ego, remove power, remove politics. I didn't allow any politics in my businesses. And if some snuck in with particular people, then I would remove those people. Are you talking about interpersonal conflict or the sort of Machiavellian behaviour? Just just go deeper on removing politics. Because yeah, I, I think one. politics are human dynamics. And I think any more anytime there's more than two humans in a room, there's human dynamics, some positive, some negative. So can we can you explain what you mean by that? Great. Yeah. So so there's maybe sort of individual level politicking and then then at leadership level politicking. So at the individual level, yes, I wouldn't we had a we had a culture and an, an engaged level of business. And, and Flamingo, we used to be really publicly acknowledged for, for the culture that we had because it was very flat, it was very um, transparent, it was very real. And if there was issues that I was aware of between staff member, leadership team members, then that would become my focus to have that sorted out. So very good at sensing that, you know, someone's not saying something, someone's got an issue with someone or I'd seen it in a meeting, immediately I would respond to that, take them and sit them down and go, you know, we 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 just can't have this level of friction in the business. So so let's either go away and try and work it out yourselves. You can't work it out with me. You can't. I'll get a third-party mediator in it. You can't. We'll do something else. And if we can't, one of you might need to leave. That's how it's going to go. So why don't you do your best? to come get it all out and come to some some agreement. And so, and, and normally, and this is what I learned in organisational behaviour, 85% of the time, it's not actually an issue between the people. It'll be some process issue in the business that's meant that something's happened and this person thinks it's that person and they're annoyed. It'll be something that is solvable. So, so look to solve that. But that's like, stamp that out. Two issues there, stamp that out. And even if I had a burning, you know, something to do with the, the investors or board, but I knew two of my staff were, you know, having grown each other unhappy, I would drop that and I would come and I would sort them out. So so that was that. Then at the more senior level, when there might be some politicking about people jockeying for better positions or, you know, egos were at play, then we'd have to call that out straight away. Come and sit down with the, the executive take them through what what is the, the values of the company and how, how we behave and just say, like, you either sign up to this 
or you need to move on. And, mm-hmm. and so in, in startup world, we have that slow to hire, fast to fire. And so if there was this misalignment and there was any kind of politicking or jockeying, then we would you know, support people to change that behaviour. And, and if we really felt that they couldn't change that behaviour, we would start an exit process because mm-hmm. that's what rots, rots the business from the core. Yeah, okay. Great explanation. And, you know, there's never, ever been, a, a, I think, a more timely moment to remind all of us, um, but particularly the women and aspiring CEOs who are listening, that your EQ skills are not soft skills. They are business skills. I get very animated and energetic and pissed off when people go, oh, we need soft skills and go, they're business skills for God's sake. And let's face it, with, with the advent of everything that you're an expert in, AI and machine learning and what have you, never been a better time for people to really get other people, be able to read that room as a leader. And I do appreciate your the piece around leaders speak last and they facilitate the conversations. I I can recall, well, it was Christine Nixon, who was the chair of the board that I was on, um, ex-police commissioner of, of Victoria. Christine was a, a absolutely skilled chair because she would often speak the least, but you'd feel her impact through the, the through the board meeting, but would have a way of facilitating conversation, even very, and well, including very robust conversation, but never dominated. And I, I always, in my own roles as, as chair um, of, you know, whatever, I've, I've tried to think about that as well, because guess what? A bit of a talker. So, you know, it is something that I have to self-manage. So I, I like that, the, the read the room and, and facilitate those conversations, speak last. What about the stuff-ups? You know, and, oh. and you don't, this is not, you know, no self-flagellation oh, or no. anything like oh, that. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, so one of them was when I was sort of early in my running my business and for the vision, we're going to do a vision for, for the company and a strategy. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll do this with all of the team, so maybe 15 of the team at the time, and and I can facilitate, no, I'll facilitate and we'll we'll come up with a vision for the company and a strategy for the company with, with all of the staff. Anyway, in we go and I'm facilitating and then they're coming up with ideas. I'm just going, oh, no, like, actually, we could, no, we could never do that. And then they get excited and then I have them in breakout groups and I go and spend half a day working on this idea and it was like terrible. And then I came back and went, oh no, like what have I done? I can't have the staff create the vision. And that's where I learned it is the leaders that create the vision. It is absolutely the leaders that create the vision. The staff then can contribute to how the vision is going to be realised, but you don't get the junior staff to be creating the vision of the company that was a real mistake that I made and I had to do a lot of backpedaling out of that and then into a new strategy which took a huge amount of time I had to do a lot of damage control and that was really challenging so that was really difficult but I wanted to be probably the the biggest like fuck up that I did so I was actually running this is when I was running you remember I had for a while um the Ventura the women's co-working space oh, yes, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah the first women's co-working space of course it was the first because why why would people build them anyway so and I wanted to run a fuck up night so in the startup world a fuck up night is where you invite people in like leading business people entrepreneurs to talk about the stories of when they fucked up like in their business Mm. and it's so very private it's you know they're very vulnerable and so anyway and it was the first time in Australia had been run so we we ran the this fuck up night and I did it with the beautiful Cherie Rubenstein who is the founder of One Roof and we plan we plan all this and we invite three very high profile entrepreneurs who, who have massively failed and lost tens of millions of dollars of people's money. And then I I had a terrible story of 
a client in America. And anyway, we sort of put you know Chatham House rules in place, and we had hundreds of people come. And then these, and I'd assured that these entrepreneurs that you know everything was in the vault and they were totally safe. Anyway, we didn't know that a Sydney Morning Herald journalist had snuck in. And anyway, so these entrepreneurs are telling stories of losing, you know, $25 million of other people's money, uh, their marriages breaking down, becoming an alcoholic, getting on drugs, sleeping on a park bench because they'd lost everything. And anyway, like big vulnerable stories on this Australia's first fuck up night. Anyway, the next day, front page of like the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, Australia's leading entrepreneurs talk about how big a failure that that, that they are. And, you know, Australia of failures. Anyway, it was terrible. And I think I was, uh, I think I'd flown to the US that night or something. So I was in America and just picking this all up with it going viral all over the world. And I said to Sheree, how did we fuck up a fuck up night? (laughs) And then I've got these entrepreneurs like ringing me saying, you promised like my career is ruined. And this, and then we had to get onto like the editors sitting on Herald and onto the journalist. And anyway, it was like this major fight for us to get them to bring it down, which they eventually did. But it was, wow, that was an epic failure beyond what I could ever have conceived. And it was a failure of all failures. And so that was really tough. And and the thing for me was there, have I hurt somebody in this process? And I had. And that is the thing that we forget about in business. Am I hurting someone with this situation and then I have to fix that and fix it and fix it and fix it. I very much appreciate you sharing that because my I, I was clenching my butt cheeks as you were as you were talking about it, going, "Oh my god!" I just yeah. And and I like the question. So the, the lesson out of that: Have I hurt someone? And it's interesting. I've just finished reading a book, an Australian author, Heather Rose, called Bruni. Highly recommend it. And she talks about in the the character talks about her father as a politician asking three children every night, "Who have you helped today?" That was the one question. So that's an interesting opposite. Have I harmed? Yeah, have I caused harm or have I helped? So look, they're pretty simple, basic leadership lessons, but ones that we should all carry through no matter what industry, no matter what level of leadership we're at. So good lessons. So we have covered a bit of territory today. We've, we've talked briefly about the, uh, the manosphere and it's, you know, you're doing your best to address the manosphere and, and, and to, to help bring different voices and ideas and lived experience into artificial intelligence or the, the realm, the Metaverse, so that we can have an ethical and risk assessed environment to do business in. You've given lots of advice for aspiring CEOs, and I particularly like the formula. So get the dollars, don't spend the dollars, or work out how you're going to control the dollars. Have a vision and own it, and deeply engage your employees and your customers. You've given us some advice about women. We have to do the work, and that means turning up and turning up and turning up and learning and continuing to learn and having a, a growth mindset. There is no guarantee at all, except if you do the work, you're going to learn. And then finally, uh, we've heard about leadership is listening. Leaders speak last and facilitate great conversations. Be the custodian, not develop, but be that custodian and the embodiment of the vision and remove ego and politics. So really delve into those, use those EQ skills, which women are so renowned for, to help people be better and remove the blockers and know that even you have fucked up a fuck up night, which is just... <laughs> (laughs) you know, (laughs) 
that's uh, you know, but but I I do I, I like the lessons that you've create uh, that helped us learn from your own fuck ups, which are leaders do have to own the vision. We can't outsource that. Yes, we can bring people on a journey after we've we've developed it to uh, how to implement it. But but when you fuck up, you got to work out if you've hurt someone and do something about it. So, Dr. Katrina Wallace, always always brilliant to spend time with you, even if it's I'm usually in some room somewhere listening to you and being absolutely enthralled. So thank you for investing your time with me and the listeners of the Lead to Soar podcast today. Thanks, Katrina. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for your constant unswerving dedication to the work you do and to championing particularly women. Uh, it's always inspiring and I equally follow you with great awe and appreciation and full respect. Your sister. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm on my own heroine's journey and I do like that one as well. It's the heroine's journey now, not the hero's journey. <laughs> Thanks, Katrina. This summer, A Career That Soars is pleased to offer a new, unique experience. Michelle Redfern, Amal Youssef, and myself, Mel Butcher, will be hosting Leadership Is a live in-person workshop in Madison, Wisconsin, August 11 through 12, 2022. If you are a leader in an organization that's serious about supporting your female talent pipeline, learn more about sending a small cohort of women from your company to the event at leadtosoar.com slash sponsor. That's leadtosoar.com slash sponsor. And if you're a career woman ready to grow your ability to create the outcomes for your organization that matter most, we'd love for you to join us. Visit leadtosoar.com slash leadership is for attendee workshop details. That's leadtosoar.com slash leadership is. This has been another episode of Lead to Soar, a production of A Career That Soars. You can reach Michelle Redfern at michelleredfern.com and Mel Butcher at melbutcher.com. Join us inside A Career That Soars at acareerthatsoars.com. <laughs>